0: Welcome to People Who Wrote Books, a podcast about people who wrote books. I'm your host, Andrea, and I am going to tell you the stories of some of my personal favorite authors. So I've been going to the movie theater a lot lately. I'm sure many of you have because movies are back and this makes me super happy. Anyway, in one of those, I saw a preview for Wonka, which is going to be released in December. Now that makes the third movie based on Roald Dahl's book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And then that just got me thinking about how many other books have multiple movie adaptations. So of course, there are authors like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who has many movies based on his multiple stories of Sherlock Holmes. But I was really curious about one book that inspired many movies. So I started looking into it. So you've got Frankenstein, which was written in 1818, and there are approximately 40 movie adaptations of this book. The first one created in 1910, and then there's A Christmas Carol, which was written in 1843 and has about 50 movie adaptations. The first one being released in 1938, and then there's Bram Stoker's Dracula, which was published in 1897 and has 60 plus movies, the first one being released in 1922. So I decided that this episode is going to be about Bram Stoker and his book that inspired like 60-ish movies, including The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which is out right now. Abraham Stoker was born on November 8th, 1847 in Dublin, Ireland. His parents were Abraham and Charlotte. So Brahm is a junior. He was the third of their seven children and he was ill and bedridden for the first seven years of his life. I can't find anything that even speculates what was wrong with Brahm, But for some reason, he did not stand upright for his first seven years. And as you can imagine, with any mysterious illness during this time, the doctors tried lots of experimental techniques, one of which was bloodletting, which is letting out some blood, sometimes done with leeches. And this experience may or may not return in his writings later on. I'm very surprised that there is not a forensic historian out there somewhere that has attempted to diagnose this childhood illness. There, there must be. So like, if anyone finds that, let me know. So basically what I do know though, is that he was bedridden as a child with a mysterious illness, and he apparently just kind of miraculously recovered from it and then started school at age seven. And not only did Brom recover and walk again, he became this incredible athlete. So Brom began at Trinity College in Dublin in 1864. And I just wanted to note that the full name of that college is the College of the Holy and Undivided Trinity of Queen Elizabeth near Dublin. So I definitely understand why they shortened it. And while he was at Trinity College, he participated in shot put weightlifting, high jumping, long jumping, gymnastics, soccer, and race walking. And yes, I had to look up race walking. I didn't know it was a thing. And apparently it still is. Basically, it's just walking really fast and you have to always appear to have one foot in contact with the ground. Anyway, Braum was not just involved in all of these sports. He was also very good at them. In 1867, he received the Dublin University Athletic Sports Champion Award. Not exactly sure what you had to do to get this, but it was a pretty big deal that he bragged about for many years. But our buddy Brahm did not just excel in athletics. Oh no, that is not enough for him. He also rocked academics and student leadership. So As a student, he led the College Historical Society and the University Philosophical Society, which were these two like major scholarly organizations. And apparently it was just unheard of to have one student run both of them. But Brahm did it. And he's not going to stop there. He actually is also into like theater and arts as well. Now, after he graduates with a bachelor's and a master's, of course, of course, it's Brahm. Um, he started working for the Irish civil service. And then during this time, because he can't do just one thing at once, he also was a theater critic for the Dublin evening mail. And Oh yeah, he wrote a couple of short stories that were published in the London society. Of course, in 1876, he reviewed Henry Irving's Hamlet. Now, Henry Irving was a Victorian superstar. He's like a mega star at the time. He was an actor manager, which basically meant he did everything for a production. And eventually he did become the first actor to be knighted. He's a big deal. The review that Brom wrote for Henry was a good one. So Henry invited him to dinner and they became fast friends, which I think is just because high overachievers attract. I don't know but they became really good friends. Then in 1878, Bram was married, but we know Bram by now. And he wasn't just going to marry anyone. He married Florence Anne Lemon Balcombe, who was known as one of the most beautiful women in Dublin. Of course he did. Her other suitor at the time was Oscar Wilde. Yes, the famous poet and playwright. That's the one. So, Florence chose Brahm over Oscar. They got married, and that same year, Brahm publishes his first book. Now, his first book was titled The Duties of Clerks of Petty Sessions in Ireland, and it was a handbook in legal administration because Brahm took his role in civil service and developed it into an entirely new department. Therefore, he had to write the manual. He created this new department within civil service, so he had to tell people how to how to operate it. So he wrote the manual. Now, even though this book is a far cry from the style we know of him, it is so on brand for Brahm, right? I didn't just take a job. I took a job. I improved it dramatically. And then I wrote you a book on how to do it. Yeah, that's our boy. Now, at this point, Henry Irving was opening the Lyceum Theatre in London, and he asked Brahm to be his business manager. So, Brahm and Florence moved to London, and then in December of that same year, 1879, they had their one and only child, a son that they named Irving. Right after Henry, so sweet. Unsurprisingly, Brahm is rocking London High Society. He's also traveling with Henry Irving and his shows, and he starts vacationing in Cruden Bay in Scotland, which is actually where he would spend time writing. And he wrote six novels before he wrote Dracula. His first novel was published in 1875, and it is called The Primrose Path, which is a reference to a line in Hamlet. And it is about a theater carpenter that murdered his wife with a hammer and chisel. So when it came to his novels, his gothic, romantic thriller style was definitely there from the very beginning. Now, back in London, they had a beefsteak club at the theater. So apparently, beefsteak clubs were a thing. I did not know about this. Actually, they still are a thing. I did not know about this. Maybe everybody else knows about them, but in case you don't, beefsteak clubs were formed by a group of people who left the Whiggish Kit Kat Club. I know, it sounds like I'm making this up. I promise I'm not. So (laughs) the people who left the Whiggish Kit Kat Club formed the Sublime Society of Beefsteaks in 1735, and it does still exist. And basically, it is a dinner club for affluent men. So of course, Henry Irving would have one at his theater. And at the Beefsteak Club, Brahm met a man named Arminus Vanbury. And we don't have a lot of primary sources about what the conversation actually was, but we do know that they met. And it is possible that Arminus told Brahm some Hungarian folktales that may have inspired Dracula. And the point here is that there are so many scholars that debate the inspiration of Dracula. So there's also this idea that maybe he was inspired by the bloodletting of his childhood. I think that one is kind of a stretch, but again, my point is just that there's a lot of debate on the inspiration of this story. Now, what can't be debated is the influence of Whitby, which is this small English coastal town, because in Whitby, you have the graveyard, the abbey, the steps, the castle, all of these classic elements in the book Dracula can be found there. So Dracula was published in 1897, and it was a hit instantly, and it has never gone out of print. Now, obviously, it's not the only book with the accolade of never going out of print. Tom Sawyer hasn't, Emma hasn't, there are others, but it is still an elite honor. Dracula is published, it is popular, but what I find very interesting that I did not know is that the first 101 pages of the book were not published. The UK publisher said it was too scary. There were these murders that had been going on in London. The murder was still on the loose and the publisher was like, no, your first 101 pages, that's a lot of pages, are too scary. We can't publish them. The original manuscript was thought to be lost. And for some reason, it was discovered in the 1980s in a barn in Pennsylvania and No one even knows how it got there, but it does begin on page 102. So those 101 pages gone. Luckily, Brahm was able to publish some pieces of it in different editions. So the original preface in the first edition of Dracula that was published in Iceland still exists. So I will read you the translation because I don't speak Icelandic. The original preface states, Quote, I am quite convinced that there is no doubt whatever that the events here described really took place, however unbelievable and incomprehensible they might appear at first sight. And I am further convinced that they must always remain to some extent incomprehensible. End quote. Okay, so this is the preface. So did he really believe this? Did Brom believe these stories Or was this just another way to scare us silly? I mean, I don't really know, but I don't even care because I like it either way. I like it if he believed it. I liked it if he was just trying to scare us. I'm fine with it either way. Now, Brahm continued working at the Lyceum Theater until 1904, and he published another seven novels in his lifetime. He also wrote several nonfiction works, including personal reminiscences of Henry Irving, which was published in 1906, the year after Henry had passed away. So Braum passed away on April 20th, 1912, which just happens to be five days after the sinking of the Titanic. That is irrelevant. Just wanted to throw that in there. And we aren't completely sure how he died. His death certificate lists a few reasons, and therefore theories are all over the place. So the theories include that maybe he died from complications from his unknown childhood illness, that possibly he overworked himself to death. Maybe he never recovered from a stroke that he had in 1906, or another theory is that he died from syphilis. Now that theory stems from the fact that one of the causes of death listed was Locomotor ataxia, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sure I got that right. Okay, which is the inability to precisely control your bodily movements, and that is a common symptom of syphilis. So, with this syphilis theory, I wanted to go back and look at the relationship with his wife. She really is not mentioned much after their marriage. Obviously, Brahm was working and traveling a lot, so there are some people who think maybe she was resentful for that, but truly it appears that Florence held her own nicely in London. She was known for being a great hostess. There are a lot of accounts, including Florence herself, who say that she and Brahm had a platonic marriage after the birth of their son, which, you know, that's possible. So I guess maybe when he was on all of his travels, he managed to get syphilis. It could have happened, but Brahm was cremated, which was actually not super common at the time. It was a very kind of a cutting edge thing. I mean, obviously they did it many, many, many years ago, but in London at that time, it was uncommon. So there are questions as to why he was even cremated, but because he was cremated, I mean, the answer of how he died is never going to be solved. And even though Brahm did have success as a writer during his lifetime, at the time of his death, his work with Henry Irving sort of dominated the obituaries and memorials. And honestly, I think Brahm would have been fine with it. They did seem to be very good friends. And there is a quote from an article in the Chicago Daily News from 1888 that I thought was a fitting way to end this episode. Quote, Mr Irving's great success in this country has been due to a very considerable extent to the shrewd management of Bram Stoker. We know of no manager more vigilant, more indefatigable, more audacious than he. He knows how to make friends, how to keep them, and how to utilize them. At all times he has an eye to business. Yet he is always, to all appearances, a careless, cordial man of the world. In the manipulation of Mr. Irving's intricate and enormous business, he exhibits a coolness, a shrewdness, and an enthusiasm that are simply masterful. Irving is fortunate to have so able and so loyal an associate. End quote. Now, obviously, Dracula kept Bram alive. Thanks to all of the adaptations and this entire vampire culture that it inspired, Bram truly has grown in fame after his death. And I think he has far surpassed his reputation of only being the manager of Henry Irving. I hope you enjoyed learning a little bit about Bram Stoker. And remember, behind every great book is a person who wrote it, and this person became as immortal as his character.